Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I'm very excited today to have our third installment of episodes dedicated to previewing the Future Reading Nebraska Conference and the featured speakers that are there. And today I'm joined by Dr. Paula Kluth, who is a former professor, teacher educator and consultant, author of Universal Design Daily, uh, because we're going to be talking some UDL on today's podcast. And so really grateful to Dr. Kluth for taking a little bit of time uh, to chat about not only UDL, but yeah, her book uh, and just some of her experiences. And so, Paula, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Well, I'm not only very happy to be here, but I'm excited to be coming to Nebraska. Uh, and we look forward to learning from you over the course of June 13th uh, for everyone that's listening in. And we'll say maybe right from the top that this is a free conference, whether you're virtual or in person. So make sure that you check it out because that access is there. And so grateful to have you lead and share as a part of that event. Can you give us a little bit of your backstory, Paula, for folks that don't know about your work and um, just your time in education? Sure. So I am a former educator. I'm a school teacher. So I was a inclusion facilitator or special education teacher in K-12 classrooms early on. And inclusion is sort of the centerpiece of all of my work. So I know we're going to be talking about universal design for learning, but I always make it a point to say that all the work that I do, whether I'm writing about co-teaching or universal design or differentiated instruction, it all is sort of a a way, a strategy to support those inclusive spaces. And it's a technique to try to get our doors opened wider in our schools and our classrooms. So that's always been my focus. My background um, or my certification is in complex support needs or significant disability. And uh, after I was teaching for a bit, then I was uh, became a university professor and most recently was uh, at Syracuse University as an academic. But as you said in the intro, I left college teaching quite a while back when I had my kids and I've been doing consulting ever since. I've been working in schools here in the Chicago area, um, Chicago public schools and other schools here in the Midwest and well across the country as well. But really all this work is centered around this messaging around how can we create schools and classrooms where, you know, not only students with disabilities can get what they need, but where we can maybe think about how do those conversations help us create better learning environments, and better learning experiences for all kids. Oh, I definitely, on a personal level, have a heart for all that as well. And so really grateful to have a chance to learn and dive into that work on the podcast here today. And for folks that uh, maybe are not as well-versed with UDL, Universal Design for Learning, um, though I know some folks on the podcast will be, we've done episodes a while back on, on that topic, but maybe even as a refresher for them, can you give us just a little bit more about what is UDL as an intro? Sure. It's, you know, it's kind of challenging to do, but I'm going to do my best because there's a lot there in this model. This is certainly not something that comes from me. This is not my own invention, but David Rose and his colleagues out, out in Boston, they, in the, um, I, I want to say in the early 1990s, but there could have been even some conversations before that started talking about what could schools look like? What could classrooms look like? if we began to eliminate barriers in the same way that we think about eliminating barriers in the physical world. And I don't want to go too far down this path historically, but a lot of that conversation about barrier and being barrier-free 
started in the late 80s and early 1990-ish when we had the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there was this huge push to think about architecture, right? The language of universal design, not UDL, but universal design, um, some of the listeners may know, comes from the field of architecture because they were trying to think about, now we're going to have to design in ways that are beautiful and accessible, right? We, If we're going to design a post office, a public square, we have to be thinking about these things because of this law. So they started that conversation and then we start having this group of educators trying to, in a very inventive way, uh, pull that metaphor over and say, well, what if we had, quote unquote, curb cuts in education? What does that look like in a classroom? And so they just started dreaming about that. And it, the conversations really started, again, I want to speak for, for Rose and his colleagues, but I'm big fans of the work. But, you know, I think that they really started a lot with technology and because we were seeing such advances at that time and continue to do so. But even Rose himself has said, you can do UDL without tech. Of course, technology just happened to be an interesting new way to think about accessibility. So for example, I mean, something like having, think back to the 1990, you know, in those early days, having such a wider range of access to audiobooks, for example, would have been, an, you know, we didn't have that before. You had to kind of make your own. Um, and so it was the advent of like textbooks. And we started to see textbooks available in those ways. So um, things that word processors could do, and I should say things like Microsoft Word or programs could do, and that kids starting to have access to maybe having a personal computer and things like that. So that there was more that was available. And now we just see this has sort of grown and changed. Their model has grown and changed. And it continues to be this push to say, what could this look like? So the definition of universal design is sometimes it's easier to say what it's not. So I often start by talking about a model that folks know, which is differentiation, right? Like a lot of us came up <laughs> thinking about differentiating instruction, which is definitely part of a model of universal design. Differentiation has this, um, and I don't want to, I mean, I've, I've written books about differentiated instruction, so it is an incredible tool. It really gets us thinking about the entry points for kids who have learned differently or need something different. It helps us think about their participation, how we might assess them. And so even though teachers may sort of use those tools differently, the, I guess the centerpiece of DI has been largely about if we have kids who don't present in the same way that their peers present, what can we provide to them? How can we change what we're doing to respond to that? This is a little bit of a maybe oversimplification on both ends, but I think the idea behind universal design was instead of thinking about those kids coming in, so instead of thinking about, Andrew, you're going to need something different. How, what assessment could I provide for you? How could I shake things up so that you feel that there's a, a place for you here? What kinds of materials will you need? The idea of UDL was let's just think more generally about the environment or the lesson as the target of the need. <laughs> so we're just kind of thinking about in general, how do we create the most access? And we want to think about how we are going to design our lessons and learning experiences so that no matter who's in the, in the space or in the room, we are providing as much as possible for not just access, but success as well. So there's three, a lot of folks know about the three principles of UDL, which is 
We're going to provide flexibility in the ways information is presented. That's called representation. So, you know, that might be, are we going to provide anchor charts and PowerPoints and diagrams and <laughs> physical models or wear a costume, you know, if that helps. We can provide flexibility in how kids or students respond. So whether that's, you know, making sure that kids have adapted writing materials or they have a keyboard that they need or just that there's a range of assessments and then also options in the ways that students are engaged. So that's a, that's a lot about motivation and relevance. And that can also cover sensory need. Are you ready to learn? And the last thing I'll say is the universal design for learning model is really about and the difference is instead of looking at individual kids as the starting point, it looks at, again, the environment and the experience as the starting point. So let's try to make those curb cuts, if you will. Let's reduce as many barriers as we can in instruction, in what do the accommodations look like? What about the supports? Um, how can we ma maintain high expectations? And the other thing that's really kind of cool about this is unlike, and I'll speak for myself, when I was learning about this model and as a teacher, I was like, I have enough. I don't need other models. But the thing that really attracted me is one of the things that you hear a lot in universal design for learning is that there's an emphasis on over time, helping students to become expert learners. And that's really different. That's not language we had seen a lot of before, especially as the you know, the crown jewel of the model itself. So that over the course of time, as students are with us through the days, the weeks, the months, and the year, can we help them become stronger at knowing themselves and knowing how to learn when we're not there anymore, learning tools. And as an old special ed teacher, I love that element. It's such a nice overlap to self-determination and advocacy. So at first I was reluctant early, early, early on, and um, I've fallen in love. So I'm all in. <laughs> well, I can tell from your passion and and obviously to have pursued it enough to have written on the topic to the degree that you have too. That's great uh, to have that advocacy. And again, to have that also at our Future Ready Nebraska Conference event that's coming up. So uh, in the midst of that, some things uh, that struck a core with me, I guess. Would you say that this is maybe a proactive design approach to something that some of us might be familiar with as a reactive experience. And, and what I mean by that is that, again, to speak to my own experiences, there were times, particularly early in the classroom, where you would say, here's the lesson, here's the one size kind of fits all, and maybe teacher-centric approach to this. And it almost would be the case that it would be those few kids that would raise their hands and ask a, a question um, that would lead you to a different support, a different uh, instructional method or style, or, or there was something that they needed that afterwards seemed very clear, should have been part of the original, and you, you sort of post-implementation make those modifications where here we might be saying, okay, maybe knowing that or at least anticipating some of that on the front end, how can we diversify in the design prior to launch? Is that a way to think about this or walk back what part of that maybe isn't? I think it's maybe the best way to think about this. And you're forcing me to talk about my fanny pack. Which, which I, I did not know that's where you're going. But. I thought we could avoid it, but we apparently can't. Um, so let's just go there. Um, but one of the stories I tell, I mean, it's just funny you say that because first I was a high school teacher and this is back in like, I would say 1990 or something. And so I have this fanny pack that I'm wearing running around this massive high school. 
And it had all, you know, of course, you can imagine that the access to technology I had at that time was almost nothing. So my Spanish English dictionaries in there, my koosh balls, my sticky notes, my highlighter pens. And I'm literally, if I had had my step tracker at that time, I mean, I would have won every challenge and contest with colleagues and friends because I was just sprinting from one end of the building to the next. And as you said, I would I would run into a classroom or even just gaze into a classroom. And I would see like, oh my gosh, that student's really struggling. And I would like whip open the door, run in there. It's like, oh my gosh, the teacher gave out that mice and men packet and it's not going to work for this kid. So now here's the retrofit that you talked about. I'm highlighting the directions. I'm making something, I mean, on the spot from a fill in the blank to a matching exercise I'm crossing out the last item. I'm throwing it back at the kid and running back out the classroom, go to the next classroom. Someone looks uncomfortable out of their seat. I'm tossing them a koosh ball, crossing my fingers, hoping for the best. <laughs> that is, you're absolutely right. That is the retrofit model. Now, both of us having been you know, experienced educators, yes, there's always gonna be some element of retrofit, something we didn't see coming, you know, whatever it may be, or someone's just having a day that's just, it's unexpected what their needs are. But for the most part, this is, takes us on a journey to kind of think about those things. If some kids will need, you know, a lot of movement, can that either be built in for all kids? And that's, I think that's one kind of nice thing about this. We now know that all kids really need some breaks and movement and sort of shaking up of the, uh, those learning moments. Could we just kind of build that in and provide it? Or do students know that they can sort of self-advocate and take those breaks if they need to, you know, kids with those kinds of needs, or there's always two graphic organizers offered. It's just what we do in here. Um, And can I say one more thing about that? Um, I think what else came to mind for me is sort of far as moving away from the fanny pack moment is, you know, if we did that more organic design, you know, like you and I could collaborate, we would still maybe have a few of those where I'd be running, but wouldn't be as often. But the other thing that's kind of neat about this is we're starting to see in some instances, kids in and I've heard this more kids in high school and college, some kids with certain learning disabilities in particular, that when professors and teachers start to really thrive with these models, that we're starting to see a a few kids saying, you know, I don't even need my accommodations anymore. And that becomes the question, right? Well, when is an accommodation? When is it UDL? And yes, exactly. That's a great question. So if I'm running live captions on my Google Slides, if there's already the all those systems, and I think COVID did this, right? Teachers learned how to use those systems where kids can go in and find their assignments on the classroom's webpage, you know, or whatever it may be. If there's already, it's now fairly standard practice, like you can go and get another set of notes or there's collaborative notes being taken in classrooms. You know, if flexible seating is an option and this, all of a sudden, it's like those things are already available for me. So those things I would have had to advocate for, or we'd have to insist upon in some instances, they're already there. And uh, an aspect of that as well, I would assume, is if you're a classroom teacher and you say, oh my gosh, I have to make all of these things available and, and you might it might feel a little overwhelming. What I'm hearing there too is that you're going to confront these 
scenarios anyway and it almost feels better to try to anticipate those and take your time with putting a plan together on the front end to expand to that because otherwise uh you're having a fanny pack moment <laughs> right <laughs> where your hair is on fire and that doesn't feel good right especially if you're leading an entire classroom you know you want that environment how, how do i say this? the tone for that environment is set often by your demeanor and composure <laughs> and how good you're feeling in the moment as a teacher, or at least your perception of it is. So yeah, would you agree, I guess, that that's, this isn't more work, it's just shifting when that work takes place into a place that might actually be easier for the educator? Uh, yeah, I love how you're phrasing that because I think where the more work comes in is intellectually, it can feel like a lot because mm. it's like a new model. I think that's what's overwhelming for folks. And the idea that, you know, I laugh because the book is called, it's Universal Design Daily, but it's 365 ideas. So it just started kind of as this sort of calendar notion in my head, because there's a lot covered in that, in the model that was launched by, by David Rose and his colleagues. And I, I, it was a lot there. So I thought I was unpacking it for myself. So then some people say 365, I have to master all of these. No, I just was being playful trying to say, there's all kinds of ways to do this. And what teachers end up doing, it won't shock you, Andrew, but they open the book and they go, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that. And there's so much in there that's already part of the, just the fiber of many classrooms, if not most. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it's the idea of getting your head around, this is maybe a model that I want to, that I have to kind of maybe learn a little bit more about. But the reason I'm attracted to it is exactly, you know, the reason I kind of made the leap as well to learn something new was because of exactly what you're saying. Isn't this the most elegant way to do the work? We've never had something more as comprehensive as this. The research behind those recommended practices that are, you know, sort of the underpinnings here is so strong. And just the idea that, yeah, if we could front load this, what ends up happening is we're hoping that we then meet the needs of those kids that we have in mind and who we're entering to, to sort of share the fanny pack goods with. But as you sort of alluded to, we often find out that with those practices and all teachers have done this, you offer that up and then something we find that there's other beneficiaries, if you will. So can I give an example of that? Please. Okay. One of my favorite examples is this little guy, his name's Courtney. And I was in a Chicago public school and I always talk about, you know, barriers are sometimes really obvious to teachers. I mean, a physical barrier is obvious, like the student's wheelchair does not fit in my classroom. I mean, that one's obvious. Or this kid does not understand the science. That's somewhat obvious. But some barriers, I would not perceive this kid having a barrier, either because he's already successful academically, doesn't give me any struggles, you know, with behavior or anything like that. He participates. And that's what's nice about this model is it really isn't just about kids who have those needs, it's helping kids thrive and succeed and gain skill and become expert learners. So it's really about everybody being able to take their profile up a notch or, or more notches. So Courtney is that kind of kid. Like, I don't have any concerns about Courtney. And one day he's in the classroom and there's this glorious looking adapted keyboard that is for a, a student with a physical disability uses. It's colorful. It's different looking. Um, it's got great big letters on it. And any kid would think it was cool because it looks like a toy. And so the student that typically used that keyboard was not there. And so Courtney said, I need that keyboard. 
I said, hmm, tell me more. <laughs> He's like, I need it for writing and thinking. I mean, there's no reason he can't try the keyboard. It's not a fancy piece of assistive tech. It's just an alternative keyboard. We have a couple of them. So I said, okay, Courtney, go ahead. And so Courtney grabs the keyboard. He does not look up. I do not hear from him. He's the most fluent he has ever been. And I liken this to having a, like for me, it could be something as simple as you get a new calendar or planner. I'm kind of old school. You know, I was telling you in the prep that I have a little, you know, I'm going to admit it. I have a paper calendar as well as some other supports. Um, but if I don't want to do something or I'm like, oh, I have to plan this project, getting out my little colored markers, you know, and getting out my, all my little tools, it's kind of a motivational, you know, element to that work. For some people, it's the fun new phone and they've got their fun new piece of assistive tech. And so they're less likely to procrastinate on something. And so here he is, this barrier is invisible. Who knew that getting to access this would be such a motivator, right? So for one student in the classroom, that adapted keyboard was physical access. So we would call that an expressive option for him. But for Courtney, I would put this in the engagement principle. It was fun. It was jazzy. It was interesting. It was motivating. And he just couldn't wait to get his hands on it, literally. So we got a few more and other kids were sort of kind of having fun learning and learned about adaptive keyboards, which is really cool too. And now we're back to what I talked about earlier. If our goal is to make you an expert learner over the course of our time with you, it is really helpful if my teachers are teaching me about assistive tech, if they're teaching me about interesting apps, different tools I can use to express myself, and giving, you know, again, as we get, become more savvy with this, getting and giving feedback around that. It's like, oh, well, you try, you decided to make a website instead of creating a poster. Do you think that was the right choice? Tell me more about that. That think that was like helpful for your audience. So now it's helping kids just sort of learn about, uh, you know, they're sort of authentically growing in terms of just teaching and learning, even if they're just doing fine academically, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's lifelong. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. And in sharing that example too, and, and you know, understanding this as a as a tech conference, something that I think of in this vein, and not to put words in your mouth, but the SAMR model I appreciate because it gives language to how we're utilizing technology, and it helps me be intentional in terms of where I'm at with the uh, way in which I'm leveraging a particular tool, and pushes you to try to do some of those higher end things yeah, where, where we're kind of getting away from substitution. But I, I personally feel that substitution, particularly in these instances, uh, plays a major role and should not be seen as um, a lesser utilization of tech when it provides access in a way that, that helps with those inclusive practices. Maybe if that's aligns with what we're talking about here as well. Absolutely. And we do find that kids are very interested in the tools that they see in classrooms I think it used to be like, don't worry about that. Just do your own thing. <laughs> That's just for Andrew. We don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and so anytime we're, you know, bringing, again, whether it's an app, whether it's an augmentative communication system, whether it's a piece of assistive technology, I mean, kids are interested and sometimes they're more savvy than the adults. They may be less fearful. They may be more motivated in some ways to learn more. And so I think the potential, I, I wrote a piece many years ago called, um, it was for the, 
a publication called Reading Teacher. And it was about how all classrooms benefit from having kids on the autism spectrum. And one of the points I made with my co-author, Kelly Chandler, was that when we have a wide range of students in our classrooms, one of the things that happens is we may see more tools. We might see a wider range of texts. We have different vantage points that kids bring to their work. You know, and we have maybe we might have other tools in tech. And, and we often see that that becomes a jumping off point for kids to not only just have interest and learn something, but oftentimes they become, this might be a little bit, I don't know, a grandiose, but like engineers. I mean, they're they're the ones thinking of let's add this symbol, let's do this, we could use it for this. And again, back to expert learners. I mean, what a gift to have kids get to think in those ways be inventive in those ways and be real contributors. Gosh, and I'm, I'm going to botch who this quote is attributed to, but there is the one about how 21st century learners are uh, to be literate, right? It is not to necessarily read and write, but to be able to learn, unlearn, relearn, like, and, and all those things that this is giving them exposure and practice with and being able to just think differently. And um, gosh, looking at our time here too, because I do want to make sure that we uh, pivot a little bit to some of the UDL hacks. I know that's something you're going to feature in, in the conversations that you're able to share on the 13th of June. Yeah. Could you maybe give us a snippet, like one of the the several UDL hacks that it sounds like is going to be part of what you share at the event uh, so that people can get a sense of what they can expect to learn? Absolutely. So I talk a lot about that. I think the number one hack, I'm going to cheat a little bit and just say the number one hack really for all teachers is to know that you're already doing this and keep doing the things that are powerful. And so teacher, like if you are giving choices, you know, you don't have to give a hundred choices, but if you're just saying to kids, Hey, you can sit in your seat, you can stay in your seat or you can go on the floor. Like that's, you. that's in other words, that's powerful. That's helping kids to become expert learners. Like, does that work better for me? Does that work better for me? And it's sort of making sure that kids don't all have to do the same thing in the same way. So choices is one of them. I know you said one, but um, and, and let's give another one, easy one that I talk about a lot is just put your, those captions on, put your, whether it's Google Slides, PowerPoint, um, it is free and you can, check by checking a box and you can just do a little search on this, you can be running live captions. Administrators should be doing this to model for their teachers. Teachers, put your captions on and leave them on. The research on running live captions is rich and it's growing. And you have a nice literacy benefit there. It's helping kids who are deaf and hard of hearing, of course, but it's also helpful for kids who are, hey, are newcomers. I mean, we could go on and on. So those are just, there's so many simple, easy things that we can do that we're either already doing or literally within seconds, we can be implementing. You know, that's going to spur me to go try to find a YouTube video or something that I can put in the show notes. And so audience hold me accountable to this, that will maybe do a little, give a little insight into how to do that in Google Slides, for example, if you're wondering a little bit more about that. Sounds like something I could probably find, right? Oh my gosh. It's when you, when you, I, I, again, we can't, I can't sort of take you through it here, but when you see it, Andrew, it's, you're not going to believe the ease and this is free. And I've had this all, all along. And I'll just say one more thing for those that use PowerPoint. I don't believe it's available in Google yet, but in PowerPoint, you can also translate. I can be speaking in English and I can have live captions in Spanish. So if you've got families where that's a need and you're doing presentations, um, but again, with just literally just one check, you know, and one um, just enabling something on the app. What a powerful way to provide that invitation. 
Terrific. And I will do my best to track that down. So make sure you check out the uh, show notes. And with that as well, Paula, if folks were looking to, maybe they can't make it to the Future Ready Conference, um, where could they connect with you and learn more about your work? We'll put this in the show notes as well. Great. Um, yeah. So my website, my my one-stop shop, if you will, is my website, which is um, in www.inclusionrules.com, as in, yay, inclusion rules, like that. So that's one place. And then, of course, I'm on social media. So it's just through my name. So on Facebook or Twitter, um, it's just Paula Cluth or at Paula Cluth. And, um, you know, I share a lot of these same ideas here. And in the website, there's articles on inclusion and a lot of these topics we talked about in collaboration and UDL for sure, short videos, lots of resources, especially if you like to pass this on to your colleagues, you know, if you're just trying to get others on board. Terrific. And uh, again, those I'll make sure that that makes the show notes also. Uh, and to bring things to a close, uh, Paula, I would just give you a little bit of space to say if there's a, a parting message or uh, something that you just kind of like to put as a bow on our conversation today, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, the last thing I would say is it can be very overwhelming to think about all of this. And so I always say, you know, as such a passionate advocate of inclusive schools, when folks ask, where do I start? I say, start with students that maybe have some of these higher needs and you're a little bit stumped. Start with those students. And sometimes students with the, you know, sort of some of those higher needs and kids who learn differently and have those profiles, they are great catalysts for creativity. And so when one student, I'll just say what, what a student during the pandemic who just could not come to class anymore, a student with Down syndrome, and he wasn't showing up. So we made these really cool like adult coloring book pages for his biology class, you know, that he could sort of shade and color and listen and just, but very dignified looking. And the teacher, the biology teacher was like, why am I not giving this to any, everybody? Because actually the, the research on, you know, shading and doodling and sketching was really good for sustaining kids' attention and memory, actually. So there's an example, somebody that needed a different note-taking format spurred this idea that, hey, let's give everybody an alternative note-taking format. They can either choose or use both. Sometimes those kids are your greatest catalysts for your creativity. Thank you so much for sharing not only that, the other hacks, a little bit more about UDL, inclusion, your heart for that work, uh, and for joining us for the Future Ready Nebraska Conference. Uh, if you are listening to this and have yet to register, you can access uh, nefutureready.com, and that will give you all the information that you need to be able to sign up for in-person or online, but it's free either way, so make sure that you get yes. a chance to take advantage of learning from Paula through that format, uh, but uh, for the podcast specifically today. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks for having me. 